All right, John chapter 5, please, if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your device. John chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, just listen along. Kids, there are outlines for you, or adults, outlines if you want to fill in the blank. And I made this one a little more challenging, so do your best. I believe, I believe we have some prizes for you if you, is that right, Sarah? Do we have some small prizes? No, we don't. Maybe next week we will have some prizes, but you can bring your outline up to me anyway. And if you are, let's say, too young to get these blanks, but you draw a picture of Mr. Trainer, you're going to get a prize in the future too, okay? All right? So it's got to be a good likeness, though. No, I'm just kidding. John chapter 5, Minnie's going to read for us. I'm so excited to be here. I'm kicking things over. Uh, be blessed by the reading of God's word. John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said, that, said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I, I, I have had this desire to want to be able to go backstage for something. To, I guess, be an insider, right? To see what's really going on behind the scenes. Have you thought about that? I'd like to be at a sporting event. Uh, a basketball game, a football game, where they invite me to go behind the scenes to the locker room and, and hear what the coach is saying to the team at halftime. Or maybe go behind the curtain and uh, go to the green room or whatever it is at a Broadway show or some TV show like that or maybe a concert and just see what it's like as they prepare to go on stage. I, I want to see what's really going on behind the scenes. Can you relate to that? Well, today, 
we're given a chance to, as it were, go behind the scenes with God himself. Today we're given a little glimpse behind the curtain. Today we see a glimpse into how God the Father relates to God the Son and how God the Son relates to God the Father. It is a glimpse behind the scene and we, as we see how God relates to God, you might say. And the lens through which we're going to look are the powerful, powerful words of Jesus Christ himself. That's the thread running through this passage. The powerful words, powerful words of Jesus. Words that mean to affect my life and yours right now. These words do two, two things for us. First, the powerful words of Jesus reveal his words of power. They reveal. As Mindy read, he's been an invalid for 38 years. It's a long time. 38 years. Once again, he is at the pool called Bethesda. Urban legend has it that if an angel comes by and stirs up the waters, the first one into the water after the angel does this gets healed. So he's there again, hoping it's all he's got. It's like betting on a, a lottery ticket. It's not a good bet, but it's the only hope he has, he thinks. Then a man asks him, a man he'd never met before, walks by and says, do you want to be healed? I mean, the question seemed so ridiculous that he didn't say what he was probably thinking. Why do you think I'm here hoping and hope that I can get into the water? But he doesn't say what he's thinking. He simply smiles and says, all I need is for someone to get me in that water real fast. Well, the strange man didn't offer to help with that. Instead, he spoke words of power, words that brought results, words that accomplished their intended effect. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And with those words arriving into his ears, at once, verse 9 says, at once, muscles that had hardly moved in 38 years now felt a new strength. At once he could, he could crawl. No, no, at once he could stand. No, no, at once he could walk, take up his bed, his straw mat, and walk by the powerful words of Jesus Christ. But it's a Sabbath day. It's a day that God had set apart by his law for his people to refresh you physically and spiritually. A day in which God therefore said, don't work on this day as a gift to you. But what constitutes work? That's an important question. And over the years, the rabbis had created 39 categories of work 
that were prohibited on the Sabbath? You'd think it'd be a pretty simple question. They came up with 39 ways you must not work on the Sabbath. The last of those 39 said you may not carry one of your possessions from one place to another outside of your domain. Don't move one of your possessions outside of your domain. Well, the former invalid is now carrying his mat outside of his domain. So the religious authorities confront him. And the guy answers in verse 11, The man who healed me, the man who healed me, that man, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. It's not my fault. Now, when you hear someone say, I got healed, how would you respond? You might say, that's wonderful. Praise God. You were an invalid? Are you kidding me? 38 years? I thought I'd seen you there a long time. That's amazing. How did this happen? Tell me more about it. I rejoice with you and your healing. But the religious authorities don't do that. They say in verse 12, Who is this? Who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Give us the healer's name who broke our Sabbath rules. And the healed, the healed man doesn't look so great either, it would seem, as the Apostle John has portrayed him. Clearly the healed man didn't require for any information about the guy who just healed him. And he kind of does a bit of a blame shift, doesn't he, when he's confronted? Like, it's not my fault, it's that guy over there somewhere, I don't know where he went. He told me to do this, it's not me. And then when he finds out it was Jesus, he turns him in. This is one of the, I think, very few miracles, it seems to me, where Jesus performs a miracle for someone, but there's no indication of a faith response on the part of the recipient of the miracle. Maybe that's why Jesus says to this man in verse 14, See you are well, sin no more, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Maybe, maybe Jesus is addressing the hardness of his heart. Look, perhaps, perhaps there was some connection between his suffering and some specific sin. Perhaps. But in John chapter 9, Jesus is going to tell us, don't make that assumption. Don't assume specific sin led to specific suffering. In fact, the entire book of Job says, don't ever make that assumption. But maybe, maybe Jesus was trying to help this guy realize something. That he had a bigger problem than his physical infirmity. That he needed to be right with God through repentance. But the guy gets right with the religious authorities instead of getting right with God. He says, hey, oh, there he is. There's the guy who told me to carry my mat. He's over there. And so they confront Jesus. Now, I imagine this could have ended in some kind of mild Sabbath discussion. And Jesus saying, okay, I won't have anyone carry their mat anymore. But he doesn't do that. Quite the opposite. He amps up the controversy about a thousandfold in verse 17. Jesus says, quote, my father is working until now, and I am working until now. Now, 
Here's where the reveal begins to happen through his powerful healing words. My father is working until now, and I am working until now. You see, Jewish people in this day, they at times would have prayed or worshipped together and said, Our Father. But no one in their right minds ever dared to say, My Father, as if implying a very specific, personal, intimate relationship with God. Not like this. And on top of that, Jesus said, My Father is working. Oh, and I am working. Recall one of their man-made Sabbath rules was, do not carry one of your possessions from one place to another inside of your domain. But everyone said, that doesn't apply to God. I mean, God is infinite, so his domain is infinite, so God can work on the Sabbath. I mean, they had these kinds of debates. Besides, you want God to work on the Sabbath. You want him sustaining the universe every day of the week. So everybody said, yes, the infinite one can work on the Sabbath. And then Jesus comes along and says, just as God can work on the Sabbath, so can I. And they caught the implication. They immediately understood his point, as John tells us in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their man-made rules, but notice, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you see how the healing of the invalid by Jesus' words is now revealing who Jesus really is? Jesus is using that miracle to make an explicit claim to deity. I'm not sure if you've heard people say this before, but sometimes people will say, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Later on, his followers ascribed that title to him. But Jesus himself never claimed that for himself. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Here, Jesus claims full divinity, full godness. My Father is working, and I am working. So realize what is being revealed here. Reveal, put yourself in in their shoes. Realize what's being revealed. Because the Bible, as they were well aware, is radically monotheistic. There is only one God. But what's being revealed now is the fact that the one God exists in three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's being revealed. That God is one in essence, but three in person what we call the Trinity. That's what's now getting revealed. And if that's blowing some mental fuses for you, that's good. When finite creatures truly and earnestly ponder the infinite one, we should blow a few fuses mentally. So, now they're trying to kill him all the more, we're told. And so we know where this glimpse behind the scenes is taking us. It's taking us to Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. And what we see next helps us grasp the implications of that. Secondly, 
Secondly, the powerful words of Jesus give life. First, they reveal. And secondly, they give life. I took a class one time with scholar D.A. Carson on the book of John. And I was reviewing my notes this week from that class. And he said about this passage, this is the most important passage in all of Scripture for defining what Son of God meant for Jesus Christ. So let's, let's think theologically for just a moment. There are a couple of angles on the Trinity that are helpful to know. The titles aren't helpful to know, uh, necessarily needful to know, but the ideas are helpful. One angle is called the ontological trinity, if you want the theological term. It just means being. It just means who you are. That God is three in one, one essence, three person. The other angle on the trinity that's helpful to know is what's called the economic trinity. It just means what you do. One is who you are, one is what you do. The economic trinity implies that there are differing roles, differing roles as it relates to our salvation within the equality of the Godhead. Imagine, I have four children, that's not the part to imagine. Imagine I'm speaking to my 21-year-old daughter or my 18-year-old son whom I, I love and respect. But let's say for some reason I feel the need to remind them of my authority in our home. And I say to them, you are my adult son. You are my adult daughter. You are legally an adult. We are equal in the eyes of God and equal in the eyes of the law. But right now, you are living here in our home willingly as an adult. And in our home, I'm still the dad. Believe it or not, I'm still leading our household. As you willingly live here, you are agreeing to embrace our rules and standards for our home. Now, what's happening in that conversation? I'm saying we are fundamentally equal in value and dignity before God and for the eyes of the law as fellow adults. But under this roof, you willingly embrace a different kind of role. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but that's part of what we start to see as we continue. Verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So remember, he's just made himself equal with the Father, but now he says, I have taken on, for the sake of salvation, this role of dependence. I am relying on the Father. I am embracing willingly this role of dependence. I do what I see the Father doing. I do the works of the Father. Well, what works are those? Well, then Jesus explains in four statements, four statements, each beginning with the English word in our translation, for, F-O-R. Four statements beginning with four. Look at them. Verse 19. For... For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. There is unity of purpose. Verse 20, for, for, the Father loves the Son with a unique love and shows him all that he is doing. 
4, verse 21, explaining further. 4, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Whoa. Another explicit claim to deity. Leading to verse 22. 4, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. One more explicit claim to deity. So, four reasons, basically saying two main ideas. Track with me. Two main things Jesus is driving at. That he has the role, the role of giving life and executing judgment. The Father has delegated to the Son this role of giving life and executing judgment. And how you respond to that, how we respond to that, is the most important thing about you right now. How you respond to that reality defines everything that is most important about you now and into eternity. For notice the purpose in verse 23. Catch this purpose, friends. Verse 23 begins that. Do you see that? <laughs> purpose clause, that. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Fourth explicit claim to deity in this passage. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Sometimes, sometimes when a member of a, a Christian cult, a group that distorts Christianity comes knocking at my door, I have taken them to this verse and appealed with tears in my eyes. As you deny the deity of Jesus, you are not honoring the Son. And if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father who sent Him. Do you see how Jesus is like the dividing line for all humanity? Either you honor God by honoring Jesus Christ fully, or you dishonor God as you fail to honor Jesus Christ fully. It's that simple and that profound, isn't it? And the way you honor him here, the way you honor Jesus here is by hearing and believing those powerful words for your soul. Notice verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you notice the present tense there? Whoever hears his word and believes has right now has eternal life, present possession. He or she has already passed from death to life. So if you are in Christ this morning, you have eternal life as a present possession. You have already passed from death to life. Did you know that when you walked in today? But how does this happen? Verse 25. 
truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, friends, is now here, when the dead, when the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, His powerful words, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You see the thread running through this passage now. Jesus said to the invalid, 38 years, hoping in hope, running out of hope. He just spoke to him, get up, take your mat. He's saying now, that's what I do for your soul. I speak live, and you live. The invalid is an illustration of what Christians experience in the new birth. It's what you might say Lazarus is a picture of in a way with his physical raising in John chapter 11. Jesus comes to a funeral for his friend Lazarus. He's been dead three days. He says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man comes alive, comes out. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, if you're a Christian, that's what's happened to you. He said to your dead soul, come out, come alive, live. And you did. And you pass from death to life in that moment. Verses 24 and 25 capture both sides of the equation if you put them together. You must believe and God makes you alive. You must believe Jesus' words. And Jesus Christ makes you alive by those words. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is mystery there to be sure. But he acted on your dead soul. To enable you to believe. A couple weeks ago my family and I we were in Santa Barbara. We rented a house for a week. I love going back there. I went, I finished college there. And I met Jesus Christ there. I met somebody who was talking to me about how Jesus had risen from the dead. And that was new to me. I thought, that's crazy, but if that's true, that's a game changer. It means I'm living a lie. And as I wrestled with this, one day I went for a walk in December 1990 on Hendry's Beach. And I believe, looking back at that moment, I was converted. Well, this past or two weeks ago, we were staying about five miles from that spot. So I, one morning, got up and I went for a walk on that beach. And it was interesting because I remembered a large rock and I look to my left and I see large rocks, but I'm pretty sure that day in 1990, I went to my right. So I thought, man, I think I've been telling this story all wrong for years, but I go to my right just in case, and I've got to walk quite a ways to get around the bend, around the edge of the bluff, maybe a half a mile. I don't see any big rocks. I'm just praying and thanking the Lord for what he's done in my life regardless. And then... I turn the corner and I see it, just like I remember from 1990. And tears filled my eyes as I 
saw that spot where, as far as I can tell, Jesus Christ said to my soul, live. And I came alive spiritually. Now you don't need to know when or where that happened for you. You don't need to know when or where. You just need to know that it's happened. You just need to know that eternal life is your present possession. You just need to know that you have passed from death to life, friends. That's the takeaway here. Be confident in the powerful words of Jesus who brought you to spiritual life. Let's make some application of that. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you're going through a trial right now. We all will. It's inevitable. In fact, I would submit COVID-19 is a bit of a trial for all of us, is it not? And it can be frightening. This virus is really nasty. But here's the question for you. Here's the question you want to ask yourself. What is providing perspective for my soul through this trial? What is helping me keep this trial in its proper perspective? What, what truth... What truth is grounding me in grace and sustaining my heart right now through this trial or whatever you're walking through? A financial trial, a family trial, a health trial, you name it. Here's a truth that can help you. Here's a truth that can change how your soul relates to God in the midst of that trial. That you remind yourself, I have eternal life as a present possession. That by the powerful words of Jesus Christ, I have already passed from death to life. Preach that to yourself tomorrow morning. Preach that to yourself, and that difficult trial will feel different for you. You will say, death may even come. Death may even come. It will come sooner or later. But death has nothing for me to ultimately fear because I've already passed from death, out of death, into life itself. Are you with me? Yeah. Anxiety will be weakened. It won't be eradicated. It'll be weakened. Fear will be lessened. Worry, by grace, will be diminished because you know that you have eternal life right now by Jesus Christ and his words to your soul. It puts everything else in proper perspective. Because Jesus will, he tells us here, by his powerful words, raise us all one day to stand before him. Look where he goes next, verse 28. Now he goes future. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. There it is again. Everyone who's in their grave will hear the voice of Jesus Christ. And they will come out. They will be raised. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So by his powerful words, once again, Jesus acts 
this time on every single person who ever lives, and they are raised to stand before him. Those whose lives testify to his transforming work and the genuineness of faith, those who have done good such that they show they've been transformed by grace, they rise to life forever with him. But those who have done evil, he said, those whose lives do not testify to the reality of faith in Christ and the transformation he brings by his grace, they will rise to everlasting ruin. What will that day bring for you, friends? His words are going to raise you. His words are going to cause you to stand before him. And you will enter either into everlasting life, the eternal life you can have right now, or to everlasting ruin. His powerful words reveal who he is and give life to you. They give life to you as you believe. Let's pray in light of that right now. I want to give you a moment to interact with God. The servers can prepare to serve us the Lord's Supper. But just take a moment, please, to take this in. This might be a very, very familiar message for you. But I hope it has a freshness to your soul. I pray that you see how important it is. Life-defining. But if this message is new to you, if in all honesty you've yet to turn to Jesus Christ and believe his words, I urge you to do so right now. If you're hearing my voice, maybe you've scoffed at all of this like I did. Maybe you thought this is foolishness like I did. But now something inside of you is realizing I need life in Christ. Turn to him right now, believing. You can say to God in a simple way, I'm sorry for my sins. I want to turn away from them. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross for my sins and rising from the grave. I believe you died for me. Please come into my life and change me. Please speak words of life to my soul. You can do that right now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this glimpse behind the scenes, as it were. A Father giving power to the Son to give life. Let us all hear these words of yours, Lord Jesus Christ, and believe. And let us rejoice this morning that for all who do believe, we have eternal life as a present possession, such that every other challenge, lack, deficiency, or trial is kept in its proper perspective. And we say, I have life. I have already passed from death to life in Christ. Help us to rejoice as we, as we take the bread and the cup, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.